Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Amami. On this week's show, we're looking at all the book-to-TV adaptations this year, from The Handmaid's Tale to American Gods. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. Welcome back. Happy to be here. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, Gazelle. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jen. Hey, Jen. So for the prompt this week, I'm curious, what are your favorite or least favorite book-to-TV adaptations where you were a fan of the book to begin with? My favorite, um, the one that jumps to mind immediately is Salem's Lot, the original mm. Salem's Lot. Mm. Just because um, I I saw the miniseries, the 19, I think, 79 adaptation uh, of the miniseries, which I've talked about in this podcast many, many times, many yes, times. Uh, when I, I, saw, I saw it before I read the novel. And uh, I was shocked at how well the miniseries captured the book. And there were some changes. There were some things that they did differently. But I really think that they understood that book, and it was directed by Toby Hooper, who did the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, among other films, and uh, like, and within like a few years of him directing that, so I think he was kind of in a in a zone at that point. And I don't think I've ever seen a Stephen King adaptation for TV that that quite got like on a basic level the source material in the way that that one did. And there were a number of. Stephen King adaptations in the 90s, like we went through a, a period, you probably remember this, where it seemed like there was a new Stephen King adaptation like every month. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, it was like ABC was doing it and it was miniseries for the most part, but that was my favorite one. And around that same time, another formative experience with this is uh, there was this thing, nobody remembers this. They're going to be like, oh, Matt, with the deep cuts, uh, Kavik <laughs> the Wolf Dog. There was the, there was this 1980 TV movie called The Legend of Kavik the Wolf Dog, which was based on a novel for children, for young people. It was like young adult fiction, I guess, uh, by Walter Morley, who wrote Gentle Ben, called uh, I believe um, Ka- just Kavik the Wolf Dog. And I read this when I was thir- in third or fourth grade with my class, and it was a story of a sled dog who uh, is um, in a plane crash. And his cage falls out of the plane and he's starving for several days. And this boy who's hunting comes across him and is going to put him out of his misery because he's so badly injured. And then they make eye contact and it's like love at first sight between this dog and this boy. And he nurses the dog back to health. And then the dog's owner tries to reclaim him. Wow. This sounds like something that would have been totally up my alley when I was it's 13. It's such a good <laughs> it book. Sounds amazing. It's such a good book. But the thing that was interesting about it, the thing that struck me about it as a kid was I'd never read a children's book that was as savage as this book. I mean, this was a tough book. These are people who lived in the wilderness and it was it was written in 1968, but I feel like it might have been set somewhat earlier than that. And these are not this is not like a sensitive like urban liberal kind of book. I mean, this was like this was like Jack London type stuff. Yeah. And at the end of this book, the uh, the dog uh, who is uh, brought given back to the owner because he lacks like he lacks nerve, basically, like I, I can't remember. It's like something about he's lost his fighting spirit. He goes a he does this 2000 mile trek across Alaska to, to get back to this boy, which is really a great story. And he becomes meaner and meaner and meaner along the way. Basically, he becomes an, a wolf. He becomes a wolf, wow. and when he and but there's an irony to the ending of this book. When the wolf comes back to this boy, it's an interesting Freudian slip. When the dog comes back to this boy, <laughs> he's a wolf now. He's a wolf now. Like the entire point of it was to get back to this boy and 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 have this wonderful, loving, domestic life. But in order to get there, he had to become a wolf, right? 
So the TV movie does this, and they lost all of that oh, stuff. Man. It was just your standard, like, boy and his dog story. It was like Benji. They basically made Benji, and they get to the end I of it. I did love Benji. Well, Benji was great, but Benji <laughs> Benji was, Kavik was like the R-rated Benji. Right. That's what it was. It was like R-rated badass Benji. And at the Which end, there's of, a huge demand for from the public. There is actually. I think somebody, if somebody remade Kavik the Wolf Dog now, I don't know if they could. I don't know if they'd be allowed to, like the way the book was. But he, there's these dogs in town. This pack of dogs that bullied him when he was a sled dog, and now he's a wolf. And he confronts the leader and tears his throat out. And in the TV movie, wow. which and I remember watching this. And not liking it, I kept watching it even though I didn't like it. It's one of the first things I think I ever actively disliked as a kid. <laughs> and uh, the end of it, the, he fights the leader of the pack and he puts his you know, jaws on his throat and he lets him go. And this little kid who's watching goes, it's amazing. He could have killed him, but he didn't kill him. Oh, God. Yeah, and even as a child, I thought, what bullshit. <laughs> what unbelievable bullshit. First of all, to change that ending, which was so disturbing to me, and and also to have that kid say to say that line. Right. Just to let you know that he uh, didn't kill that him. That sounds terrible. It was horrible, and it was like, ugh, anyway, I'm sorry. I feel like I've just subjected you to some therapy here. I feel here, like but... I have a greater <laughs> insight into Matt. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's my story. That's great. <laughs> How about you, Jen? Well, I don't have a story that good. You know, I, I was trying to think about this, and it, it made me feel like I don't read because for whatever reason, a lot of the TV shows based on books, I haven't read the books ahead of time. That's not the case with films as much. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the two that, that I like that, that jump to mind, one is very obvious, and that's um, The Leftovers because I actually did read that book before oh, nice. the show started. And now, you know, the second and third seasons really have nothing to do with the book at all. They're complete inventions. And a lot of things in the first season even were, were changed from what was in the novel. But I like – Did Tom you Parada's like the book? book. You liked I the did. Book, I yeah. liked it a lot. I just, I just love the whole concept of, of the sudden departure and how it affects people. Um, and I like, I like them both in their own right, mm -hmm. uh, especially because the show is so completely different at this point. Um, and then I don't know if this is kind of a cheat because it's not really a series. It was – a mini series, but it was really like a two part movie. But the adaptation of Richard Russo's Empire Falls, which came out in, I think, 2001, um, was an HBO movie. But it was, they called it a limited series because it was two parts. Mm -hmm. I love that book. And I thought it was really well done and just like perfect, perfectly cast with like Paul Newman and that was good. Hoffman. I love that book. And I thought they just did a great job of, of bringing that to life. That was excellent. What was yours? So mine. And I feel like I've talked about this show before in, in our prompt section, but it's got to be Little House on the Prairie mm. because it kind of yeah. it, the books in the show kind of coexisted in my life at the same time where I was reading them. But I was also watching the show and I viewed them as separate entities, even like I wasn't like picturing M Melissa Gilbert in my head as I read the books. But it also felt like the show captured the spirit of the book. I, I felt that way less so as it went on into their adult years. Because one of my favorite parts of Little House on the Prairie is when Laura starts to become a school teacher and she starts to fall in love with Almanzo. And yeah. like those were such those, those are some of the most exciting parts of the book to me. <laughs> and it just as they grew up, it kind of faced a similar problem that a lot of high school shows do where they have trouble transitioning the actors into adulthood and mm. having that same that same charm that it had in its earlier years. But, mm. Yeah, that's that's mine. And then I had a, I also, I watched the Pride and Prejudice BBC series before I read the book. And I had a similar feeling that you did with, um, Kavik. With Kavik, where, 
of course, Pride and Prejudice is a classic, but you know, I I was I was so impressed by how well the miniseries captured the book and yeah, but it was kind of a reverse situation. I hate having that kind of feeling when you're watching something that's based on a source, and it's not. What bothers me is never if they change individual things that happen in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, like they lose a scene, or they add a scene, or they compress a few characters into one character. Like that kind of stuff never bothers me. What bothers me is when people adapt a book who seem to not have understood the book. You know yeah, what I mean? Like, like on a really yeah, basic totally. level. That's what bothers me. It's never individual things like I can't believe they cut that character out. Like I never care about that. Right. It's like, did you get the book or did you not get the book? And you can you know that. It's like a feeling. It's an atmospheric yeah. feeling. It's in the writing. It's in everything. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. So that's this week's prompt. Listeners, if you would like to weigh in or suggest a future prompt, email us at tvquestions at com. Next up, we're talking The Handmaid's Tale and book-to-TV adaptations in 2017. We'll be right back. So this year so far, we've had a lot of big shows already, and a lot of them have been book-to-TV adaptations. And I feel like we're starting to see this pop up more. Not, It's not necessarily more common because this has happened throughout TV history, but it's more high-profile kind of going. Obviously, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones is the most obvious example, but... This year, we have everything from Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu to Neil Gaiman's American Gods on Stars, Leanne Moriarty's Big Little Lies on HBO, and Jay Asher's 13 Reasons Why on Netflix. And next year, we have another huge series. Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan series is coming to HBO in an Italian co-production. And Gillian Flynn's Sharp Objects is also coming to HBO. So it feels like these are all kind of buzzier, a little bit more prestige in a way. And I thought this would just be a good opportunity for us to talk about what makes book-to-TV adaptations unique, which is that because of the nature of TV as a medium, it kind of makes it necessary for the show to extend the story beyond what the book presented, which is something we touched on a little bit Mm. in the prompt. And it feels like, at least with a couple situations this year so far, people have gotten upset by that idea the two I'm thinking of are 13 Reasons Why and Big Little Lies, where the prospect of a second season seems to really bother a lot of people mm-hmm. because it's and I think it maybe has something to do with the fact that both of those shows have both of those stories deal with death. So it feels maybe a little bit more craven than mm-hmm. another story. Well, and they're also have, very they're very they're, contained mm-hmm. ideas as a narrative. And when you get to the end of it, you're like, OK, the story has been told. Right. That's that's sort of how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. But then no nobody ever listens to me about these things. Like the, TV, <laughs> the TV industry is not saying, Matt, should we do another season of Big Little Lies? And I would tell them, probably not. Right. Probably not. Like if they do, it should be like an anthology thing where you call it Big Little Lies, but it's a completely different story. Right. It's a completely it's, it's, it's a story that's sort of in the same vein, but it's not those characters. And that's kind of what Jean-Marc Ballet said when when um was it Maria Elena Fernandez who interviewed him? Mm-hmm. For us, who he said he he would love to work with these actors again, but he didn't necessarily feel like there was more to that particular story. So it's interesting to see what happens with that. Here's a thing that's kind of intriguing to me, though. We have all these TV series that are based on novels. Mm-hmm. And uh, in some cases, uh, nonfiction books like uh, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, the first mm-hmm. season of American mm-hmm. Crime Story. Um, but we also have originals 
that are taking the form of novels. They're borrowing devices from literary fiction and all three seasons of Fargo do that. Dear White People does that. It even mm-hmm. has like the font of it even looks like the font of like a Judy Bloom novel from like 1971. <laughs> and and every section of that is presented as if it were a chapter from the point of view of a different character. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of this kind of thing going on on TV, like where, where you know, this whole idea, this whole debate about um, is television the new movies, uh, is uh, TV better than movies and all that kind of stuff. And I think the more interesting story is uh, – the novel and the and the television show and and how one is sort of replacing the other well, it it's does, kind of replacing the other you know like what i mean tv is trying yeah. to certain tv shows are trying to play into that novelistic element like you see a lot of i'm trying to think of, of the recent example where a tv show had chapters instead of episodes and then with, well, um, Stranger Things did, but it wasn't based on a book, right? No. But it's still but kind it was of the same idea because it was inspired by Stephen King. And, and with the OA, they had like part one. Season one was part one. Season two was part two. Exactly. Was seasons. Yes. You know? And then and then in uh, in Fargo, you have like not only do you have literary devices within the context of the season, like the main story that's being told, but you will also have like these sort of stories within stories. Mm-hmm. You know that it sometimes it's like. A scene in a novel where somebody will begin telling you a story and then there will be a chapter break and there and there will be a separate chapter devoted to the story that this character is telling. You know, they'll do that yeah. kind of thing where it's like they'll break off like a five or ten minute chunk and tell you some other story that is not part of the main story but is related mm-hmm. to it. And that's a novel thing to do. And in fact, the way Fargo does it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Herman Melville novels like Moby Dick and Billy Budd. Where you have the main story, but then it'll take a detour and they'll give you like 20, you know, 20 pages about a particular subspecies of whale or something like that, you know, and then and and if you're into that kind of thing, it doesn't really doesn't really take you out of the story that much as long as you're interested. And that's Mm -hmm. something like I think a TV series can do and a movie can't do even a long movie can't usually afford to take a detour like that. Like there was another one that did this. It was a. Oh, the uh, the Hobbit films. Now, the Hobbit films, the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit films are kind of interesting in this respect because they're so long. Mm-hmm. They're like like the first trilogy, I believe, The direct, if you count the director's cut, which has an hour of extra material per film. It's, you're talking about 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And then the Hobbit movies, like for some godforsaken crazy reason, are also 12 hours. Like that book is like, you know, it's like the length of like, you know, a pamphlet that you would get at the DMV. Right. And it's like, I don't know why it had to be 12 hours worth of material, including, you know, the extra stuff. But you're talking 24 hours worth of stuff there. That's nuts. That's a lot. That's a lot. However, it's not a lot by TV standards. Right. Like kind of what they did was they made a TV show out of The Hobbit, but they released it to theaters, you know, and and Lord of the Rings, too. Yeah. And I'm not saying that to denigrate the movies because obviously – I don't I don't believe that movies and television are, you have to get into that which is better fight. Mm-hmm. I've never believed that they're different. However, it's it's interesting to me. The reason that they did that with The Hobbit and every time I say The Hobbit I'm like can I get to the end of those two words without falling asleep? <laughs> Bored me to death. I love the Lord of the Rings movies, The Hobbit. Oh my god. Don't get me started. But anyway, um, a lot of the reason that they made I'm those tempted movies... to get you started honestly. <laughs> but continue. Uh like that and Harry Potter and the Hunger Games is because they wanted to make more to make as much money as possible. Right. Um, so some of it may have been creative, but I think 
maybe more of it was and, uh, commercial. Who reasons. knows? We might see Lord of the Rings come to TV at some point. I too, bet they. W- I know? bet there's another like, hour of footage per film in a again. vault somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. There was a moment, there was a moment, I swear, a hand to God, there was a moment during the first Hobbit film where Bilbo, they spend like 40 minutes in the Shire. They're hanging out in the Shire for like 40 minutes, and I'm going like, when are they going to get out of the Shire? <laughs> and finally, they leave the Shire, and they're riding da, 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 over the CGI hills, and then there's, and the Bilbo stops, and, and the others go, what's going on, Bilbo? And he says, I forgot my handkerchief. <laughs> And I swear to God, I, I turned to my friend. I, we were there with our sons, and I said, he's going to go back for the handkerchief. This is the kind of movie that it is. But he didn't. He didn't. But it was like, I, I really thought, like, this is, you know, Peter Jackson, I'm sure he actually argued with people on the set. Like, we, you know, shouldn't we have him go back? Shouldn't we it's have him go back? It's kind of amazing in a way. It is. It's, yeah. like, it's like, that's what passes for restraint in, right. uh, in The Hobbit, the movies. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I'm wondering about is, and Matt, maybe this is something you could explore in the the piece you may write is is whether for an author, for example, the ultimate and again, it's a movies versus TV thing, which I do think is very reductive. But if you said, oh, my book's being made into a film, it's like, wow, that that's the you know, you want your rights to be sold as a film. But I wonder now if it's more exciting, even from a creative perspective to say, hey, my, my show is going to get made into a television show because that not because it's a better medium or, you know, one versus the other is, is superior versus inferior, but because there is, I think, more creative energy in television right now and the opportunity to do different things that isn't on the film side as much. I feel like maybe that would be the case if I think if it's an anthology series, yes. But when you have a series where there's the possibility of it continuing beyond your story for seasons and seasons, right. I, as an author who might feel ownership over this thing. I would imagine that might be a little bit of a strange element, you know, True. to know that your story could just become something completely different. I think different. that depends on the author. I think that right. depends on their on their attitude towards that kind of thing. Like if it were me, if I wrote a novel and somebody made a TV show out of it and it was one season long and they said, hey, people like it. We want to keep this thing going. I would say, great. And, you know, my address for the for you to send the check is the same as it always right. was, you know, I mean, and I would like take that money and maybe, money, you know, maybe. maybe I'd write some other novel with the money they gave me from that second season that had nothing to do with my work, you know, <laughs> right. and, but other people feel proprietary about it and I don't blame them. But um, but as to your question, Jen, I I I know by this point, like a certain number of authors who have had their work adapted for film and television, like. And I've found anecdotally that when the announcement is made, people seem to be a little more excited these days if it's television. Yeah. They're, they're, you can tell that there's more enthusiasm for television. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. One is, like, as we have been discussing, um, I feel like there's a more of a chance that a television show will be true to the book in, you know, in, in terms of thoroughness. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think there are a lot of people who really when they when they see an adaptation now because of these TV adaptations of various kinds, they want thoroughness. They want they want to see all of those characters, all of those scenes, all of those iconic moments essentially illustrated. And I really believe that there are some people who just want that like they want they want some sort of glamour conferred upon the text that they've been reading by seeing it seeing everything represented right and and they feel like it's more important if they represent everything and it's almost like you're creating a slideshow of the novel like that's sort of the downside of it 
um, and you get yelled at if you change things or if you you know you you eliminate certain things, you streamline things, you can you you turn two characters into one character, you switch the chronology around in some way that the book didn't do. Purists of the novel will yell at you because you aren't just you know slavishly replicating the text. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing that I've heard authors talk about. Um, and uh, but I think it's TV, and I just think generally speaking. It's not true in every case, but there's a greater chance that people are going to find your work if it's a television show. Just because of streaming. I really think streaming has everything to do with it. I don't even think that was true as recently as 10 years ago. Like if something got bought and adapted as a miniseries for cable, mm-hmm. I don't think that was as true. I think that might start to change as we see places like Netflix get more into the movies game, producing mm. movies. You know what I mean? Where we might kind of start moving Maybe. back towards... Maybe I I think that's I think the I think the movie thing I'm really really grateful that Netflix and Amazon have gotten into movies because they tend to be funding the kind of movies that you otherwise would not see getting made mm-hmm. on a big budget. However, I think that this is a dead end for them, and they're eventually going to figure out so? that it's a dead end. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do because I think the model now is um, series. I think it's a it's a multi part thing, and I think the only things that work really standalone as movies are documentaries. Hmm. That's that's just my subjective feeling about it, and I, I and I say that just based as some uh, 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 based on being somebody who monitors social media a lot to see what people are watching and and reading and talking about, and I don't see a whole lot of discussion of scripted films that appear on these streaming services, with a few exceptions, like things well, like the Adam Sandler movies. Like right. I think there's always going to be an audience for that, but like some of these like sensitive independent films that appeared at Sundance and won an award and they showed up on Amazon or Netflix three months later, I don't see anyone really talking about right. them, getting excited about them, parsing them in the way that they do TV. Well, I am curious, I guess, if that will change because it feels like this is the year Netflix is making a bigger push into movies. Mm. And that will be the determinant of whether they succeed or fail in that regard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But there, we there, could have a whole podcast just about this. Yeah, um. <laughs> we, we and I'm sure we will. But yeah. uh, there's one other thing I did want to say before we continue, which mm-hmm. is um, I think we should distinguish here that this this adaptation of fiction into television shows is not a new thing. They've just changed the label and they've they've increased the time. Right. Because. You know, in the 70s and 80s, which were the boom years for miniseries, a lot of the top-rated miniseries were based on books. Yeah, and these Roots were things the like, Thornbirds. yeah, 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 and Roots, the Thornbirds, you know, Roots, the the the, the new generation, the next generation. Rich Man, Poor Man, wasn't that? A oh book? yeah, it was indeed, and and so and Rich Man, Poor Man, book two. Let's not forget about that, and. Uh, <laughs> And War and Remembrance and, and War and uh, – what was it? Uh, the it. Winds of War, War and Remembrance, uh, yeah. North and South. North I mean this South. was something like networks got here way before cable and streaming did. And and it's funny to me that like – again, like we have cultural amnesia in this country. So we don't know anything that happened like prior to about 1994 when Pulp Fiction came out. But this, <laughs> I'm serious. That's this being is, generous though, Matt. It is being generous. <laughs> but but this is not new. But the way they're going about it is new. Right. Like the way and – the, and, and again, the thoroughness of it is new. And I think what's also new really quick is just that to what you were alluding to before, Matt, the idea that now – maybe there was a time when people talked about, oh, what are you reading right now? What do I need to catch up on? And that conversation is, what are you watching right now? What do I need to catch up on? Right. At, at least in my experience. And maybe I'm a little biased because people tend to ask me that because they know what I do. But – I feel like that is the... No, that's definitely um, the thing. I think it is. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about what makes 
a book adaptation work. And one of the elements that I've been thinking about is in a lot of these book adaptations, we have first person narrators in the books. And that's something that I'm curious to see how a series like the Ferrante series handles it because it's such a crucial part of the the books. Mm. And it's something with the Hunger Games where, you know, I was a fan of the I was a fan of the books and then I did like the first movie, but Katniss's internal monologue is a huge part of the books that you just are eliminated in the movies. It just takes away from like from everything. And this is also mm. a huge part of The Handmaid's Tale. Offred, our protagonist, is kind of trapped in this life that she didn't choose and she can't verbally say what she thinks or feels. So the the only access we have to her is through her internal monologue. Mm-hmm. And one just side note, one fascinating detail about how they did that voiceover is Elizabeth Moss. She so there are, there are moments where she's just sitting down and the voiceover is playing over her while she goes through a range of emotions on her face. And. Mm-hmm. When the showrunner, Bruce Miller, was lining up the voiceover with these scenes, he was like, wow, I can't believe it. The voiceover matches perfectly with like all this range of emotions that are going through her face. And she was like, that's not a coincidence. I memorized the pages and pages of voiceover and I was going through it in my head as I was sitting Holy there. Holy shit. Which is just, uh, like, this is how. She's like the, the bionic actress. Yeah. She's like, this is not like, this is for a reason. Yeah. yeah. It's just incredible. So like. Hmm. And I think well, that, that explains so much about her performance. I which know is just so much on her face. That's great. And she's also, yeah. you know, like not that we should care as audience members, but boy, did she make the editor's job easier. On totally. That <laughs> well, he <laughs> was true. like you know? all the 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 DP and everyone was like, we've never seen anything like this before. And everyone would crowd around to just watch her because it just it's so unusual to have someone. Well, bring I, that level of detail. To I can it, think of but... one other example of that, and I only know this because I wrote a book about it, which is Grand Budapest Hotel, which mm-hmm. is very heavily voiceover narrated. And um, Ray Fines, like that's a, that, and that's also a movie that was made on a limited budget, so they could only shoot what they were actually going to use. And so, in order to avoid waste, Wes Anderson was doing this thing when he was shooting with Ray Fines, where in scenes where you know. Ray Fine says something and then the narrator talks for a bit and then Ray Fine says something else. Like Wes Anderson was standing there literally reading the narration wow. off off camera. And at a certain point, Ray Fines was like, can you look, can you please stop doing that? Can you please stop <laughs> doing that? Like he's like, I, I read the script. I got it. Like yeah. I'll give you I'll give you exactly as much space as you need wow. to put this narration in. So like, That's you know, there are other actors who do right. that. However... The Herculean nature of Elizabeth Moss, you know, because this is a long miniseries and it's they narrated the shit out of that thing. There's a lot of VO. There's a lot. And it it does kind of taper off as the show goes on because it's partly used in the beginning to explain the world. And as the show continues, we have a good sense of the world we're in and we don't we, we have a good sense of what she's feeling and we we don't need it as much. But Catherine Van Arendonk wrote a great piece on Vulture about why The Handmaid's Tale's voiceover is so effective. And I I liked what she said there, which is because of how it works in concert with the visuals. Because in the book, all you have is her monologue. And on the show, her voiceover feels like this jarring contrast to the world she finds herself in, which is so beautiful. And like your eye is able to move around in the scene and kind of take in the scenery on the TV show. But in the book, you 
the book doesn't allow for that. It's much more claustrophobic. You're kind of stuck in her mind with her. But on the show, it also kind of the directing reins you back in because it kind of creates the sense of the world closing in on Offred. So it kind of creates these levels where you it obviously very much understands the atmosphere of the book mm-hmm. and it uses all these different tools to kind of enhance it and also com- like enhance it, but also give you the same kind of tone and mood that is present in the book as well. The the integration of voiceover narration and action is very, very, very sharp mm-hmm. in The Handmaid's Tale. And, and it reminded and it me of... It can be funny, too. It can be funny. And yeah, in fact, yeah. there were points where it reminded me of the narration of uh, Mr. Robot. Yeah, although I'm not as big of a fan of how the voiceover on Mr. Robot progresses um, in as the show goes on. Because... And, it just feels a little bit heavy-handed sometimes, I think. Right. Yeah, I where, agree with that. Yeah. Where I think at first I really liked it, but then as the show goes on, it starts to feel a little bit like they're beating you over the head with the themes. Right. Um, but no, it it's definitely that, in 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 terms of its sense of humor, I think, and yeah. the tone, well, it's really yeah. similar. In yeah, that I, meant, I meant more in the sense of, um, this is somebody who is constrained in what she can say. Mm-hmm. And even in the emotions that she can indicate when she's in the room with people because of the power differentials. Mm-hmm. And the voiceover narration allows us to hear what she isn't saying. Right. And she's a completely different person in her voiceover. Yeah. You know, if you took out that voiceover, you would never know who she actually was. That's a great test of whether or not voiceover is actually necessary. Yes. And in this mm-hmm. case, like, I, I can't even imagine what it would be without it. Yeah, it's it would certainly be almost unbearably depressing. Yeah. Like, I mean, her her voiceover is one of the only things that keeps me from like just turning the thing off. It's so depressing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it really, really saves the it saves the show for people who have a a fairly low threshold for like. Stories where the heroine is completely just tortured continuously, you know? Yeah. Well, my experience of watching Handmaid's Tale was was interesting because, you know, I had read the book years ago, Mm -hmm. but it was so long ago that it was like I kind of hadn't read it. Mm -hmm. So I watched the first episode, then I read the book, then I kept going with the subsequent ones. And even though I had just read the book, and I I think it's it's faithful in certain ways, but obviously departs in others, I still felt incredibly tense watching the show as if I didn't know what was going to happen. And Mm -hmm. I think that's a test of a really great book adaptation is even though you know some of the plot elements and you assume they're going to be the same, are you still on the edge of your seat? And I felt that way completely. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. It feels like it's both giving you what the book does, but from what I've heard, the book isn't particularly plot heavy either. No, it isn't. That's right. they, They just have had to create more detail and, Elizabeth Moss signed on for a kind of standard five to seven year contract for this, which is normal when actors sign on for TV shows because this is not a miniseries. But that means that they are planning on potentially doing this for many seasons. And I, from what I can tell, the, the book, the book's plot will most likely end with the first season. So with a lot of these things, it kind of the farther <laughs> away it gets from the book, the the more the book looks like a jumping off point than it does mm-hmm. an actual kind of thing that's tied to the series. Huh. Wow, that's going to be much, interesting. Huh. Yeah. Without saying too much, I feel like this is a case where the book ends in a way where I'm like, okay, I could see how they would keep going. Yeah. Because it doesn't feel, it feels like maybe the story could continue. Yeah, I'm just trying to picture how. 
I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, that's where you get into dicier territory. Like, yeah, when you because I think what is so good about the show is when it exists within this world of Gilead and there's a moment where it kind of takes you outside of that in a later episode where I was a little bit less into it. So I think they're going to have to inevitably expand, you know, they're going to have to expand the world a little bit. And with that is like, what is so compelling about this show is this little world of Gilead that kind of makes you feel kind of closed in and it kind of keeps everything contained and the story happening within that is so great. So I think as it expands, it's going to, it's, I'm I'm very very curious to see how they deal with it because I think they've dealt with everything so well so far that you know I'm I'm not like I I think obviously everyone involved is super talented and up to the challenge you know yeah I mean I think mm-hmm. if they you yeah. know if they put a, if they have her like stalking around the forest with a bow over her shoulder I think people are going to be annoyed <laughs> right, you know I right. mean like there has there's got to be some other way a into different it show yeah yeah and like you want to avoid all of the the usual sort of dystopian cliches mm-hmm. you know and uh and it's that may be harder to do than it sounds yeah but another show I wanted to talk about which I haven't watched too much of but Matt um you reviewed American Gods and yeah. you this is the the Brian Fuller adaptation of the Neil Gaiman book that premiered Sunday night on stars and You've written before about how Fuller kind of made truly novelistic TV with Hannibal. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that idea as it pertains to Brian Fuller specifically and just how he approaches these TV book book to TV adaptations and makes them feel novelistic in terms of the the storytelling and the visuals and everything. I think yeah. he I think he actually did really make truly I almost don't want to use that word novelistic television, but I think I, I think we should distinguish what we mean when we say novelistic. Novelistic uh, to say that something is novelistic, I think a lot of people would instinctively leap to the assumption that you're talking about literary, i.e., like it's a story that is told to you mm-hmm. on the page, and I think that disregards how many different ways there are to tell a story on the page. Like you can be very much like kind of almost like a play. Like if you read something like uh, the original um, novel version of The Graduate reads like the script to a stage play. Like it's like very, very heavily dialogue and there's very few indicators of even what where people are standing, what they're doing, anything. It's like, you, you know, the screenplay to The Graduate is very a lot of it is just lifted directly from the book. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you get a writer like uh, like a James Joyce, for example, where I, how in the hell would you put that on screen? You know, right. like it's a very imagistic, impressionistic, subjective kind of storytelling that's almost co- kind of more like a movie. You know, mm-hmm. like this is pre-cinematic for the most part, but it feels cinematic on the page. And there's a lot of writers who are very cinematic on the page. So... There's this whole range of ways to go about it. But I think um, this is just a preface to say that Hannibal and American Gods, I think, are different examples of how to do novelistic storytelling. Right. And Hannibal feels more like one of these. It's funny because it doesn't feel like reading Thomas Harris to me. Thomas Harris is not a, uh, in my mind, he's not an imagistic writer, you know, mm-hmm. like he's not sort of throwing these cascades of, of of impressions and emotions and images up on on the page. He's not a painter, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a writer. He's not a painter. And there are people who paint with words on the page, and he's not one of those people. Right. That's not to take anything away from him as a writer. 
just to say that he's not that kind of writer, but I think Brian Fuller is that kind of writer with images. Right. You know, he and I really think it's a great work of translation because he's taken it, he's basically taken this this series of books that are not like stage plays and not like boringly prosaic prose, but they're also not like crazy experimental fiction. And he's made crazy experimental yeah. fiction out of it. You know, like that's 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 really an adaptation. That's really a translation. That's interesting. Do you think that the way he uses images is a an interpretation of what the book is? Or do you think it's he's creating his own? thing? Oh, I think he's it? creating his own thing in the same way that, say, Stanley, uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, created his own thing out of Stephen King's novel, The Shining, mm-hmm. which I think I think The Shining is a terrific book in its own right. But if you read The Shining and then you watch his movie, they have a different feeling. You know, they just mm-hmm. have a different feeling in the same way with uh, A Clockwork Orange and the novel that it's based on, um, which is also a great thing. Like, I, I almost feel like. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale book and and film slash TV show, like I think if you juxtapose those two, you might get some really interesting associations because they're both about mm-hmm. the state trying to rewire somebody's brain and make them submissive. Mm-hmm. But in one case, you've got a, a, a woman who is a productive, law-abiding member of society and who is not doing anything besides being a woman when she is captured and, and, and tormented and, and repressed, suppressed. Uh, as opposed to this guy who's sort of this unchained masculine id who's just a rampaging criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, but they're both about free will. Right. But anyway, I, we've wandered really far afield <laughs> here. But The American Gods, I think, is a, it's novelistic in a different way in that it's a, it's like a one of those novels that is very delineated where every scene is very self-contained. And you can almost, as you're watching it, I feel like I'm watching a collection of short stories about particular characters and they're really they break off and they're done you know like they'll stay in a scene for five minutes six minutes seven minutes and then they're done and they don't go back sometimes they do but a lot of times they don't i've seen the first four episodes maybe they change it up after that but it's it's exciting it's really exciting that that this is happening with uh with storytelling on 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 uh, in scripted television and just the sheer number of things that are going on i can't i can't keep track of them all I mean, and there's so many variations of them, and they're all so personal, and I love that. I just love seeing all the different ways that you can tell a story on TV. Yeah. I, I need to break in because sure. I can't believe that we've talked about American Gods for this long without acknowledging. I, I've only watched the first episode, and I just watched it when it aired. And I haven't read Neil Gaiman's book, um, and I knew that it was going to be kind of a crazy show. But Freddie Rumson was eaten by a vagina on Pretty <laughs> last night. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know it's pretty nuts. And, I've, talked, I've talked to you about this. Like, there's there are shows that make you go, "What the hell is going on?" Yeah. And it can be very, very frustrating because you don't understand what's going on. And then there are shows that make you go, "What the hell is going on?" I'm kind of into the fact that I don't know what the hell is going on. And I and for me anyway, on the first episode of that, I I was more in the I'm into the fact that I don't know what is happening. Yeah, <laughs> and that. Freddie Rumson's yeah. getting sucked into people's hoo-hahs. Like, okay, all right. <laughs> Freddie, Freddie Rumson. I love that. I love that. I it's great. I had a wonderful moment, though, where uh, uh, I was watching it. I'd already seen, like, the first four episodes last week when I was getting ready to write my review. So I happened to wa- I happened to be in the room with somebody who hadn't seen the show, and that scene came on. And he said, like, oh, I think I know where this was going. And I said, trust me, you don't. <laughs> trust me, you don't. And I watched him watching it. And it was great to see him. And like when it was over, he's like, you're right. I didn't know where that was going. 
<laughs> I mean, this is what happens when you bring books to TV, I guess. This is what happens when you let Brian Fuller <laughs> yeah. adapt a novel. Yeah. You know, so actually, I shouldn't even say that because I'll get yelled at like, that was in the book, you know. Right. Well, no. No, one, no one could do it like Ryan Fuller, though. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Fuller. What can't he do? I guess we'll find out. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazella Mommy. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm <laughs> still laughing about <laughs> Freddie Rumson getting sucked into a giant hoo ha. Uh, Matt Zoller Sites on Twitter. Twitter. That's not my Twitter handle. It's at Matt Zoller Sites. Now. And now it is. I'm changing it. I'm changing it. You can find me on Twitter at Freddie Rumson getting sucked into a hoo ha. <laughs> takes longer to type than you would probably want, but that's what I'm doing. Let's stick to it. And I'm Jen Cheney. <laughs> and my Twitter handle is still at Cheney Jen. <laughs> Thanks for listening.